0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 176. My name is Arvin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkin, our Father, our King, Lord, I bless you and thank you for the opportunity to uh, come before the students once again and to share my thoughts and to uh, engage in a meaningful Bible study with uh, people of like mind. I pray that you'll uh, bring the words of the text to life to us by your presence, by your spirit, and help us to retain the things that we're going to be studying tonight. Uh, draw us close to you and keep us safe. We'll be careful to give the praise and glory between Yeshua main. Okay, so let's pick up our reading right where, um, right where you can see my screen, right where you can see the uh, the highlight there. Okay, I say in my commentary. Surely Pastor Piper could not be the only mature believer out there where a uh, few of his sermons, whether knowingly or unknowingly, um, and again, I'm saying this by way of um, I'm trying to be all, uh, you know fair. Um, I don't think that every pastor is really trying to teach replacement theology. It's just kind of baked into the narrative that we've been taught for so long. So that's what I mean by knowing they're unknowing. But um, he couldn't be the only one who, knowing they're unknowing, he may have contained an application in the form of replacement theology uh, borrowed from the Matthew passages. So let me do this real quick. Let me scroll back up and let me read the Matthew passages for us. Uh, And we'll read that first and then we'll drop back down and read the rest of the study. I should have had this bookmarked in a separate tab, but I didn't. So, let's just do it this way. This is Matthew 9, 14-17, as written from the ESV. Starting in verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, 'The, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? Continuing, But the days will come, when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. Verse 16. But no one puts a, path, a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. And verse 17. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. And I said that was ESV. I apologize, that was N-E-S-B. Okay, so that's the passage that we're working from. And it's basically from those last two um, features of his anecdote or parable, if you want to call it that, um, where he's talking about old and new patch and old and new wineskin that we get the popular sermons explaining replacement theology, i.e. old and new religions, Judaism's out, Christianity's in, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of where we're going to go. All right, let's jump back into our uh, study. So we left off right there. Continuing, here's what I have to say. In an effort to gain a well-balanced sample from prevailing Christian views, what I decided to do was to jump online and to query a popular Christian question and answer website and I did this for the sake of um, availability. Um, I could have turned to written commentaries, I could have turned to maybe commentaries that were available via like software, like Accordance or something like that. But the reason I go online is because I want you to be able to go To the same sources that i go to and so online is maybe just the easiest way to do that so i say in my commentary here's their question we're talking about gotquestions.org here's their question and its answer reproduced in its entirety since in my opinion it's actually quite short so let's just uh read this all right let's start with the question oops didn't mean to do that there we go question what is the meaning of the parables of fasting at the wedding feast the old cloth and the wineskins. All right, here's their answer. This has gotquestions.org. These parables, which I mentioned this also as well, they're found in Mark 2 18 through 22. And they don't say this, but they're also found, it's also found in Luke, it's just not found in John. But they say that they begin with a statement that the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting. Okay, so that puts the context that perhaps the question is coming from the Pharisees, perhaps it's coming from the disciples of John, or even both. All right, they continue. The twice-weekly fast was a tradition that was adopted by the legalistic Pharisees at the time. I don't know why they had the word legalistic in there. I mean, um, some of the Pharisees were legalistic, others weren't. uh, But maybe that's just the general uh, perspective from Christianity, so maybe that's why. But uh, they talk about that even though the Mosaic law uh, prescribed only one fast on the day of atonement, which you can read about in Leviticus 16. So this is just fact. Um, fasting wasn't commanded by the law of Moses, but by the time of Yeshua, it become a tradition. And mourning along with fasting or fasting and mourning, the, kind of, the, the concepts went hand in hand in the mind's of most first century jewish people uh got continues some people came to jesus and they asked him why his disciples did not fast like the pharisees and those of john's disciples who had remained loyal to the pharisaic traditions and jesus response is given in the three short parables that we read about all right let's keep reading their answer here they go on to say The first one, right? Remember, there's three parts. The first one is a parable of a bridegroom with his groomsmen at a wedding feast. Jesus' point in that story is that the fasting during the wedding feast is pointless. Again, Yeshua is simply giving us common sense, anecdotal advice, uh, and this would have made a little bit more sense to the first century recipients. Maybe we don't have as many... um, as much of a big deal about fasting and feasting and wedding and, and all of that. We don't have all of those details linked together maybe in today's religious communities. Maybe in Judaism they still do, um, but uh, nothing really surprising about this aspect of the uh, story. Um, uh, they go on to say that in this story, Jesus is the bridegroom, and while he is present in in this world, it is a time of celebration. Why? Because he is the fulfillment of their messianic prophecies. And I completely, 100% agree with this aspect of, of their answer. Um, Yeshua giving this part of the story to help them understand his uh identity right i am the long-awaited bridegroom right in this marriage between god our father i'm the bridegroom and israel you are the bride and so now is not the time to fast and mourn but now is the time to drink and rejoice right let's get married they go on to say jesus himself said that he came to fulfill the law reference from matthew 5 17. and again i agree with the the general base understanding of the word fulfill right we're not going to go into what the greek means and the nuances and things like that the general aspect of fulfill is that yes jesus fulfills the prophecies jesus fulfills the um uh, expectations of the righteous requirements uh laid out in the torah of Moshe. so i don't have a problem with that general understanding of fulfill when we take that nuance to the perspective of um or the interpretation to the nuance and perspective of fulfill equals, or is equated with, we don't have to do it anymore because Jesus fulfilled it, that's when I draw the line and say, well, that's not quite what Jesus is going to agree with, especially if you go back to that, my Matthew 5:17 17 um, passage and study it out. They go on to say, to continue fasting with Jesus present is akin to fasting and being mournful during a wedding celebration in which the groom is present. And again, that um, just kind of makes sense to me, right? Just common sense. Why would you mourn and fast if it's a wedding, right? Weddings are all about rejoicing and celebrating and merrymaking. And so you want to have lots of uh, lots of strong drink and uh, uh, let it flow freely, I guess. All right. They go on to say, the other two parables, which we read about, which are similar, make the same point. And let me just pause for a second. They're going to link all three parables together as basically Yeshua teaching the same principle just three different ways or three different parables. We could maybe say that they are linked together since we're, they're all kind of grouped together in the way we read them. Or I've heard sermons them apart and say that they're slightly different aspects or different angles that yeshua is taking different stories you know first he's going to talk about uh, himself being the bridegroom and then he's going to shift and discuss the fact that christianity has overtaken judaism or something like that so uh, we could go either way um i've heard sermons go both ways so they say that the first one says that you don't put a new patch on an old garment and the second one says that you don't put new wine into an old wineskin. So I think what Got Questions is going to do is they're going to link the two the last two parables directly together. And so let's watch how they do this and be careful to notice how they interpret the symbols and the meanings in these uh, particular anecdotes. In the first parable they say if you put a new patch on an old garment What's gonna happen is when the new patch shrinks due to washing, it's gonna tear away from the older garment and that will make the tear worse. Now this could make sense to us today. We could we could probably even uh, replicate this particular experiment uh, at home, right? You know, they always see those commercials. Don't try this at home. Here's one you probably could try at home, right? Go ahead and buy a, buy a new patch and sew it to an old, uh, piece of clothing and then wash it. Make it, make sure it's probably, try probably cotton because cotton likes to shrink, uh, if you wash it in hot water, if I remember. So, uh, try, you know, buy an, a new cotton patch, uh, sew it to your cotton t-shirt that's very, very old and, uh, wash it in hot water and see what happens and see if it, uh, See if, see if you get some funny results. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, but uh, the point that Yeshua is making is that you want to use common sense, but there's a spiritual principle behind his story. So those who are listening to his anecdote, um, if they're only going to walk away going, "Wow, this guy's supposed to be some super duper heavy duty spiritual teacher," and all he's talking about is you know making sure you. Um, Use the right patches <laughs> with your with your clothing. Okay, no. There's always a little bit more to what Yeshua has to say, right? It's more than just clothing and patches. Uh, they go on to talk about, similarly, the new wine needs a new wineskin because as the new wine expands during the fermentation process, it's going to stretch the wineskin. This particular um, story or example is probably... Uh, distant from what we would do today. I don't know of anyone who still puts wine into wineskins to do the fermentation process. Most people just put it straight into some sort of either wooden keg or some other type of material and then go from there. Um, but back in the day, you know, 2000 years ago, this is what they use. So um, new wine in an old wineskin is going to stretch the wineskin and an old wine skin is going to burst under the pressure of the new wine. If you don't know anything about wine, as it ferments, it uh, forms gases and it's going to expand. And so if the old wineskins already reached the point where it's kind of old, it's brittle, might even be slightly cracked, it's certainly past the stretching point. Well, then if you put new wine in there, it's going to put more pressure on that old wineskin and you ruin you run the risk of um, bursting the wineskin. And of course, again, it, we, we already know it's not about Patches, it's not about wine, it's not about wineskins. As good as that advice may sound, right? Most people listening that day are gonna go, well, duh, of course we know all of those. Tell us what's what's the meat behind what you're trying to tell me? Why is this important? All right, so here's where Got Questions is going to supply their interpretation. Here's what they have to say. These two parables illustrate the fact that you can't mix old religious rituals with new faith in Jesus. Now, on the surface or in principle, perhaps there's a point that they're trying to make. Um, you know, generically speaking, if you have uh, rituals that are already set in place and disciples that are already used to those older rituals, then it's going to be difficult to try and teach, what, what's the old idiom we use, um, teach an old dog new tricks. So maybe that's what got questions is trying to bank on. Um, They go on to say, Jesus' disciples were not fasting. They're going to turn it back around and and, uh, pull in the other um, example. Jesus' disciples were not fasting along with the Pharisees and John's disciples. And why weren't they? Because they were now under the new covenant of grace and faith in Christ. And God questions, adds this explanation as if it's the given, as if it's the... um, uh, assumption that jesus is now uh presenting and teaching and um living and walking out and demonstrating a brand new religion uh, different and distinct from the older religion what that we would call judaism so this is the assumption uh that not just got questions makes remember we looked at pastor john piper's example and he seems to hint in that direction although i gave him a little bit of leeway that he could be going either way but let's keep reading GodQuestions.org. As mentioned earlier, Jesus fulfilled the law. Now, they're referencing back to Matthew 5.17. Those of you who followed my commentaries for any length of time already know that I do not believe that Jesus' fulfillment of law equals Jesus' replacement of the law with a new law like the law of Christ, or Jesus' Um, destruction of the law or setting aside of the law or dismantling love of the law or rendering it obsolete or something like that. You guys know I disagree with that particular interpretation of the Matthew 5, 17-20 passage. Uh, I have a teaching on, on my uh, YouTube channel and on my website and a, and a podcast about that. Maybe I'll put a little um, card flash up in the upper right corner around this time in the YouTube video so you can uh, go back and watch that on your own. Uh, got questions? Continues. Therefore, and they're they're talking about the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law. They say therefore, there's no longer any need to continue with the old rituals. And there you have it in black and white from their writing perspective, from their interpretive perspective. Jesus is bringing a break. To the mosaic rituals there's no longer any need to continue on with the law of moses you don't need to keep doing what moses instructed because jesus is now going to bring this new law this superior law of grace and love as if the law of moses lacked grace and lacked love or something to that uh, to that aspect all right, they continue, or they conclude, Jesus cannot be added to a works-based religion. Now, here's where I really take umbrage or or uh, issue with their uh, uh, interpretation. Why do we have to call Judaism a works-based religion? I think this is the centuries-old kind of Christian, um, what do we say, stereotype of Judaism, where we've got the Pharisaic, uh, we've got the... Um, uh, what what uh, got questions called them the um, legalistic Pharisees, right? Um, we even now use the word Pharisee in Christian circles as a synonym for um, someone who's legalistic, right? Don't play affairs, Pharise- don't play the Pharisee, don't be a Pharisee, right? Don't be Pharisaic or something like that. I Meaning, don't be legalistic. And yet, modern, um, or I should say, more current. Authorship within Jewish and Christian circles, at least in the last, say, 50 years, has really begun to rethink this stereotype. Was first century Judaism really so works based? What we're really coming to the conclusion is that they weren't so works based as we think when it comes to answering the question, how does one become righteous before God and get into heaven? It's not so much based on a work as it was based on the identity that you brought to the table or that you could be born with if you were um, a native-born Israelite. And so um, I've done lots of studies on this. So myself, my Galatian study goes into this. I'm not going to go into it right now, but um, suffice to say, just uh, woodenly labeling Judaism a workspace religion is really not um, its really not the best stereotype that I think we should be um, uh, adopting uh, anymore, it's it's really kind of um, outdated <laughs> to, to to call them that. Uh, just kind of a, a legalistic religion, but they conclude they say in the case of the Pharisees, right? They were consumed with their own self righteousness, and faith in Jesus cannot be combined with self righteous rituals. Now, again, uh, at face value, if the shoe fits, wear it. Right? If the guilt is there, then own it. Um, if you are a self-righteous individual and that's all you think you need in order to be righteous before God, and you think all of your works are going to save you and you think all of your self-effort is going to make you acceptable in God's sight, well, then yes, um, Jesus' faith and his teachings, they can't be combined with self-righteous rituals. And so on the, on the face, at face value, on the surface level, this, uh, explanation works. Uh, but if we dig a little bit deeper into the Judaisms of the first century, we're going to find that there's probably a a big disconnect between the way modern Christianity characterizes Judaisms of the first century and the way that they really uh, behaved. So let's keep going through this um, uh, explanation here. Like I said, this this one isn't that long, and I might be able to, to finish it tonight. We'll see. I go on to say, once again, this is my words, Once again, as was seen with Pastor Piper, this view seems to be supporting the notion that Christian culture and religious worship triumphs over Jewish culture and religious worship. Again, um, there's this whole idea of replacement, the idea that Judaism was broken in the minds of Christian theologians who hold the same particular view. Judaism was in uh, disrepair. It needed to be fixed, and the only way to fix it was to bring in something that was brand new, fresh, and something that had the right perspective. A reboot was needed, is, is essentially what we're we're talking about. And in the reboot, Judaism actually gets rebooted and turns into Christianity. Um, and in the reboot, we lose the law of Moses, and we instead instead gain the law of Christ. Uh, and so that's the basic premise of replacement theology is uh, Israel's out, the church is in, Judaism's out, Christianity is in, the Torah is out, the New Testament is in, Old Testament's out, New Testament's in, things like that. So uh, that's where we're going with this questions and this particular discussion. Now, I say in my commentary, I know that this particular answer from uh, gotquestions.org is specifically comparing legalism with genuine faith. So I have to give them that context right if you go back and read their answer the context of their answer i think is to show that legalism is incompatible with genuine faith and again don't misunderstand what i'm trying to say i agree i agree so i in fact i say it in my commentary and in that regard legalism is something a faithful follower of yeshua should avoid at all costs legalism doesn't solve any any problems um When it comes to being found righteous in god's sight when it comes to um uh serving your fellow man loving your fellow man right love god love your neighbors yourself the two greatest commandments legalism is going to trip you up all the time because legalism doesn't focus on god even though it looks like it does on the surface, legalism doesn't focus on your neighbor either. Legalism actually focuses on yourself. It's it's inward facing. It it focuses on how can I be perfect? How can I be more righteous? How can I be, uh, um, you know, in a place where I'm dotting all my I's and crossing all my t's and things like that? It it loses sight of the real picture, which is. God and your neighbor, right? Those are the two you're supposed to be loving, but legalism actually puts you in a position where you're just loving yourself. You're in love with yourself instead. So I go on to say, however... However, the answer above that we just read appears to take a step further by stating, and let me quote it again: quote, "Jesus fulfilled the law; therefore, there is no longer any need to continue with the old rituals." End quote. That's their statement, not mine, and I think that statement is reflective of your standard Christian positions on the law of Moses. Why do we need to keep doing the law of Moses anymore when Jesus? clearly demonstrated that his way was superior and that law and grace can't mix, right? We know that legalism and grace don't mix, but can law and grace mix, right? These are some of the questions that we entertain as Christians. And unfortunately, for people like me, people who are uh, championing a law- Uh, a lawful gospel, right, not a law-free, but a lawful gospel, Uh, unfortunately for people like me, uh, the standard Christian answer doesn't leave room for um, law and grace to go exist. I go on to say, aren't they, speaking of gotquestions.org, aren't they implying that Gentile Christians are free to dispense with Jewish-looking commandments? And I've got Jewish-looking commandments in, in quotes there, because that's the way that most Christians interpret Uh, Commandments like Sabbath, kosher, tzitzit wearing, uh, mezuzah hanging, uh, circumcision, uh, festival keeping. These laws make you look like a Jew, even if you're a Gentile. And that's why I put them in quotes, because I think that they are not designed to make you look like Jews. They're designed to make you look like a covenant member, but that's a different sermon for a different day. So I continue. And so, indeed... Um, they recommend that saved Jews leave Judaism viz. Jewish culture for Christianity as well. And I put that as a question. I mean, is that really what they're implying? Um... Historic Christianity has done that, right, down through the ages. They've asked, uh, Jewish people to, uh, leave their Judaism behind and embrace this new religion known as Christianity, um, because Judaism and Christianity are incompatible with one another in the eyes of many historic Christians. Now, I know modern day Christians, a lot of them are rejecting that historic, um, Perspective and, uh, you know, thank God for that. Let's continue. Uh, let me finish reading this paragraph because it looks like I will be able to finish this tonight. Um, I go on to say, by the way, the reason I keep referring to Judaism as, quote, Jewish culture, end quote, and not merely as a religion. You ready for this? It's because my understanding of Judaism as a way of life does not neatly compartmentalize the cultural aspect of. Of Torah keeping into religious activities. Okay, following along with me so far. While defining the secular activities as non-Jewish. So, in my understanding, in the lifestyle that's uh, described by a religious Jew, the line between secular and religious is is essentially blurred to the point that really every action performed by a religious Jew, at least the ultra-Orthodox, you know, the fervent religious ones, um, what they're seeking to do is take every day and every activity and turn it into a religious activity, one that's done for the sake of Hashem, one that's done for the sake of righteousness, etc., etc., so that there's no room in their life for what we might label as secular, even something as we might label mundane as you know, using the restroom, using the toilet, right? Going to the bathroom, in religious Judaism, it incurs a blessing to God for allowing all of my organs to function the way that they're properly uh, created to function, right? Indeed, if they didn't function correctly, then there'd be serious health problems. So. Even something as mundane as you know going to the bathroom suddenly receives a blessing, a, a prayer that you pray after uh, you go to the bathroom. So that's why I mean by secular and religious activities and things like that. I, I ask, are you following me? I think after my little bathroom example there, you should be following along with me. Let me conclude this uh, particular section. It will be ready next week for um, the example from Pastor John MacArthur. So in conclusion to this section on gotquestions.org, uh, I simply say, in other words, religious jews believe and live as if every waking moment is an act of torah submissiveness that's really their mindset um and that's why there's really no separation between jewish lifestyle and and uh torah keeping and things like that they're all bound up together my final sentence is this thus to tell a religious jew to stop keeping torah it's tantamount to telling him to stop breathing Yeah, it's basically that serious for religious Jews. Uh, Stop living. Stop breathing, right? Stop living as a Jew. Uh, Stop keeping Torah. Well, every waking moment is a moment to keep Torah. So if you tell me to stop keeping Torah, you're telling me to die, basically. And that's why when religious Jews turn to Yeshua and embrace Jesus, many of those who um, know the person who becomes a Messianic Jew treat him as dead. He has died to our religion. He has died to our people group. He has died to our culture. He's embraced a new religion and a new culture. And that'll do it for uh, the example from gotquestions.org. And that'll do it for our study on Matthew 9, 14 through 17, Judaism v. Christianity. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torturer to your congregation. Kei Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online. And um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice how to update the uh, site essentially daily uploading videos daily make sure then to subscribe hit the bell for notifications leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on and be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles okay these live internet studies are brought to you week after week. This is episode number 176 for April 23rd, 2022, the USA date. We meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. CDT, Central Daylight, Central, was that, cent- what does CD- CDT stand for? Central Daylight Time? I can't remember. Um, but, uh, the hour long show is broken into two 30 minute segments, and we just finished the first of those, uh, Thirty-minute segments uh, examining Matthew nine fourteen through seventeen. We're now poised to look at um, the second thirty-minute segment, which is exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're in paper three. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? Part one o eight tonight. And if we have time, which I think we will, we'll watch the um, video. Why is faith without works dead? just some brief important uh, details if you'd like to join us for our live studies be sure to get access to skype somehow if you're on my website right now um uh during the live study and you click on that blue skype link it'll actually open up skype in your browser and you can just join us right there and we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live q a after the study is over opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q and A, but if not. Um Take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website, where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there, and uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions, and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, Thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so Uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and take some time to work our way through this section, which is actually kind of short. So let me see if I can also stick to the reading material, and it's very self-explanatory. We're in section 5, entitled, Who or What is the Holy Spirit, Rabbinic Jewish Thoughts from the Jewish Encyclopedia. All right, let's just pick up our reading right there. These are my own words. This particular section of my Holy Spirit commentary will be quite short since mainstream Jewish views on this topic itself are quite succinct and to the point. I go on to say, Rabbinic Judaism, which is the branch that identifies itself over and against Messianic Judaism and Evangelical Christianity they take what i like to identify and so let me just give you an identification of of how i define them and their view on the holy spirit they identify it as a foundational aspect on this question of who or what is the holy spirit now when i I say um foundational as you're about to hear from their perspective uh well you know what i say in my commentary i don't even need to uh, uh, add extra words I actually say foundational, in quotes, because much of their articulated interpretations are rooted in the very scriptures that orthodox with a small o, Trinitarian Christianity holds to be infallible as well. All right? So follow along with me. Those of you who are Christians, those of you who are Trinitarians, uh, listen to what I have to say. What is more, since our understanding of Trinitarian doctrine, we Trinitarians, comes firstly from the Tanakh as it gave rise to the New Testament, right? The Apostolic Scriptures. So, first we had the older parts of our Bible, and that lays the foundation. That's why I use the word foundation. As we begin to read through the New Testament, right? You start with the older first and work your way towards the newer. I go on to say that it only makes logical sense that historic Jewish thought should at times closely resemble some of the main points of Christian thought in regards to matters of ontology and pneumatology, or pneumatology if you want to pronounce the P. I don't usually pronounce the P, but uh, remember, ontology, let me just click on those uh, words for you uh, so you can see. Give me a second. So, ontology is the branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being. It's a set of concepts and categories in a subject or area or domain that shows their properties and the relations between them. So when we talk about an ontological discussion of God, we're really having this discussion on. What is he made up of, right? How can he be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Does he have two natures, right? A human nature and a divine nature. Uh, Is he finite and infinite at the same time, right? What about the um, incarnation, the hypostatic union, and things like that? That's what we mean by ontological or ontology. And when we talk about pneumatology or pneumatology, if you want to pronounce the P. um, Give me a second. I think my screen is being blocked by my avatar. Oops. Let's try that again. There we go. That should be a little better for you. Um, Give me a second. Did it show up? There we go. All right. So the basic dictionary definition. (laughs) Sorry. Let's try that again. There we go. All right. The basic dictionary definition of um, pneumatology is the branch of Christian theology concerned with the Holy Spirit and the name comes from the Greek word for uh, spirit, which is pneuma. All right, so we're talking about um, Judaism and how mainstream Judaism and Orthodox Judaism actually have their beliefs on the Holy Spirit rooted in the part of the Bible that most Christians would call the Old Testament. So I say, to be sure, the oft-proclaimed one God of the Jews is in point of fact the very same exclusive one god of the christians so that's the starting point if you're going to have a discussion with a religious jew you have to keep in mind that from a literature perspective they're going to find a lot of their definitions rooted in the bible now of course i know they're going to bring in rabbinic writings sayings from the talmud and other um you know mystical jewish writings and things like that but There's going to be a healthy dose of Bible in there is the point I'm trying to make. All right. In other words, the God that they claim to serve is the same God that we Christians claim to serve. It's not technically a different God, Um, you know, like if you were having a discussion with a Muslim, then the God that they claim to serve, Allah, is in fact a different God than the God of the Christians and the Jews, Uh, despite what they're going to tell you, that it's the same God. It really isn't the same God. It's a different God, but not so with Judaism. For the most part, it's the same God. All right, so let me keep reading. And yet, and yet I say, as we shall shortly discover, most of the historic Judaisms that formed after the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD, they chose to articulate their ontological and pneumatological understanding of God and his spirit in distinct polemical viewpoints that separated them from the rapidly going christian and when we say christian we're really saying predominantly greek thinking church of the late first century and following now i say polemical we're talking essentially kind of defensive theology you guys believe A, we believe B, right? You guys practice A, we practice B. You guys define as A, we practice uh, and define as B. So it's the whole, what I call in psychological circles, othering, right? There's us and there's them. That's what we mean by othering, right? The others, O-T-H-E-R, other, othering with I-N-G on the end of other. You know, how do you define yourself? Well, you define yourself by not being... The other, right? You're everything that they are not, and everything they are is what you aren't, um, and things like that. That's that's the whole idea of othering. Well, Judaism is kind of reactionary, um, is what my, I mean by that, polemical. Judaism of the first century, after the destruction of the temple and with the emergence of Christianity on the scene, really viewed kind of Christianity as a, um, a competitive religion, uh, a religion that was seeking to steal... Uh, sheep from them, right? Disciples from them, people from their own synagogues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, as more and more Jewish people were coming on board with uh, Jesus as Messiah, etc., etc. Judaism increasingly saw. Christianity, or Messianic Judaism, um, the sect of Judaism, the sect of the way, as a threat to mainstream views of Judaism. And so eventually, Christianity, as it began to self-identify over and against Judaism, right? the othering principle kind of um, blossomed, then it wasn't just Christianity that was defining themselves against Judaism. Judaism was defining themselves against Christianity. And so uh, the two religions are Where they are today where they're completely separate distinct from one another you know they have some there's some similarities between the two religions but um, most people would say they're completely separate all right let's continue i go on to say in fact when reading through the ancient rabbinic resources due to the nature of how history played its hand in demonstrating the rise and spread of christianity in and throughout the ancient near eastern part of the world these are my own words uh by the way we're not into the the uh rabbinic discussion just yet i go on to say that it's hard sometimes to tell where original thought ends and reactionary sentiment begins indeed in my opinion a healthy percentage of ancient rabbinic theology seems at times to function as, quote, damage control, "quote against extant forms of Christian theology vis-a-vis or as it pertains to God and his Holy Spirit. So, again, um, if you are um, able to access the Talmud and the, the Mishnah and the Gemara and all those other rabbinic writings, you're going to find that as you read through those, there's a lot in there that's really um the the rabbinic teacher's way of trying to um, reclaim ground that was lost to Christianity and messianic Judaism as a result of you know the widespread, rapid spread uh, first century movement of um, Christianity that took place. And the rabbis are just like, you know, what do we do? What do we do? Judaism's crumbling. And so they were kind of in doing what I call damage control, uh, trying to figure out um what do we do? Uh oh, I know, let's just, you know, continue to show how Judaism is not Christianity and show how Judaism is the true way of approaching God, etc., etc., etc. So that's kind of what's going on. All right, I go on to say, nevertheless. Let's take a peek at a sampling of Jewish thought as it has been preserved for us in the reasonably reliable Jewish encyclopedia. I say reasonably reliable because, you know, every resource that you encounter is going to be it's going to have its pros and cons. It's 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 good and it's bad. So, you know, you can't just swallow all of it and say, "Wow, that's got to be accurate." History is is best described by those who lived through it or those who um, survived. Uh, So, you know, we have Ancient Judaism surviving in some form, shape, and form after the destruction of the temple. So they're going to tell you what Judaism is all about because they're the one that survived, right? The Pharisaic forms of Judaism. So you know it's the winners that get to write history books, and so that's why I say reasonably reliable Jewish encyclopedia. There's there's not a lot of Christian authorship in this particular resource, and that's going to also make it a bit difficult to just take all of it at face value as being accurate. Because it's not a broad consensus um, perspective, it's 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 more um, it's more biased and leaning towards the Jewish perspective being accurate and right uh, with with a view over and against Christianity. So that's why I say reasonably reliable. Right, um, the version that I'm going to be interacting with in my commentary is the online version, which is accessible at Jewishencyclopedia.com. All right see how much time i have i have about 10 more minutes i want to go into this section this is um it's quite a it's kind of chunky uh it's a bit of a difficult read uh in my opinion uh because there's a lot of references stuck in there and so i'm debating um they're going to talk about the nature of the holy spirit should i read it for you or should i just let you read it on your own um those of you who are listening to my podcast you wouldn't be able to get the benefit of hearing this if i don't read it um maybe i can just paraphrase uh, instead of just reading all of it there's a lot of information here from the jewish encyclopedia and um they're just gonna use different references to explain that the holy spirit is a part of god and yet he's distinct from god he's he and sometimes they're going to call it he and it he's he's a created power of god in their opinion and yet at the same time he's part and he's part of the nature of god um he's among the 10 things that were created on the first day according to some perspectives or so uh not all jews believe that the holy spirit is created some simply see the holy spirit as a um a kind of wind as it says here in my commentary a wind that became manifest through noise and light um and some see the holy spirit as um uh something that can be placed on humans like they mentioned samson receiving the holy spirit and uh he gains his strength and they talk about a sound that could be heard and things like that um they also make note of the fact that uh in the in the new testament which is really fascinating that they would bring this in they talk about the fact that um the uh holy spirit can come to rest on someone as in pentecost and the book of acts and things like that um they go on to explain that the uh, the themes surrounding the Holy Spirit often include uh, light and flame and wind, and so they mention some uh, references to the uh, the lights, uh, the glimmering, um, uh, people seeing lights and things like that. And those aspects of the Holy Spirit are kind of uh, familiar to Christians, right? when we think about the holy spirit we think of light we think of wind we think of power think of electricity um we think of um you know anointing um and things like that we think of a, of a dove right uh and then they go on to talk about the holy spirit um uh and it's um being referenced or familiar with fire. And this is one that's really, really familiar in Christian circles, right? The, the idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and the fire and the power of the Holy Spirit and um, uh, the, the burning aspect and things like that. Uh, Judaism also has those same uh, themes built into their understanding of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then they lastly talk about uh, the Spirit talking with masculine and sometimes with a feminine voice and don't get too kind of weirded out about this uh languages come in different gram- grammatical um uh m- feminine and masculine um um in grammar uh hebrew has the same so uh in hebrew uh the word for spirit it shows up as a feminine uh word if i remember uh in greek it is a neutral Term right, pneuma, uh, and in 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 Latin, if I remember right, it's masculine. Right, so you know we run the whole gamut there, from feminine to neutral or neuter to masculine, uh, depending on which language. But in Judaism, um, you know, this is not to say that the spirit is feminine, but that the language. Of grammar allows for some feminine aspects to be noticed if you're reading the text in the original Hebrew, uh, and so for that reason, the Holy Spirit was conceived as being sometimes a man and sometimes a woman. Again, uh, that sounds kind of sacrilegious to those of you who are uh, spirit-filled Christians, but just remember this is unsaved Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, trying to figure out you know why Hebrew ruach spirit is even feminine to begin with or maybe neutral in some aspects. It depends on uh, which perspective you take. So, All right, so um, uh, that's all I want to really mention concerning that without having to read through all that. Uh, I go on to say in my own words, that ubiquitous web resource known as Wikipedia that many folks have what we would call a love-hate relationship with <laughs> also has their own opinion on what rabbinic Judaism believes about the Holy Spirit. So here's a brief section from their article and let me look at this one two three and then my own paragraph and then another paragraph yeah i think i can finish this tonight it's not really too long uh let's just read and not uh stop and comment since it's self-explanatory this is wikipedia.org they say or wikipedia.com is it .org it's .com i think it's uh I think it's .com, um, might be .org, I couldn't be wrong there, but it's Wikipedia. The term Ruach HaKodesh is found frequently in Talmudic and Midrashic literature. Ruach HaKodesh is the Hebrew for the Holy Spirit, Ruach is Spirit, HaKodesh is the Holy or uh, the Holiness Spirit, um, however you want to translate HaKodesh there. They go on to say, in some cases, it signifies prophetic inspiration, while in others, it is used as a hypothesization or a metonym for God. This is important because this is basically how Unitarians view the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word Holy Spirit is just another word for God. And thus, in the Unitarian perspective, there aren't three persons, a third person of the Trinity known as the Holy Spirit. Instead, the term Holy Spirit is just another way of describing the Spirit of God or God himself who is a spirit, the very spirit of the being known as God. The same way that I might say the Spirit of Ariel is, in fact, just another way of saying Ariel. Right? There's not two spirits at work or two persons at work when i talk about ariel and the spirit of ariel i mean i am ariel and the spirit of ariel is ariel so that's kind of the perspective from a unitarian um, description as well metonym for god Uh, the rabbinic understanding of the Holy Spirit has a certain degree of personification, but it remains, quote, a quality belonging to God, one of his attributes. And that's essentially what um, uh, uh, JewishEncyclopedia.org agrees with. Most most, uh, religious Jews would uh, again describe the Holy Spirit as either god himself or a power or an aspect that can be sent from god or emanates from god you know uh, radiates from god almost um you know you picture the idea of the emperor in star wars the return of the jedi zapping luke with those purple lightning bolts is that the Holy Spirit shooting from his fingertips? You know, that's kind of the concept in at least in um, Jehovah's witnesses and Mormon theology idea with Holy Spirit is that it's uh, uh, um, a power from God or something like that. Uh, uh, Wikipedia goes on to say, In Rabbinic Judaism, the references to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of Adonai, abound. However, apart from Kabbalistic mysticism, it has rejected any idea of God as being either dualistic, tripersonal, or ontologically complex and of course this makes sense rabbinic judaism has developed developed their their pneumatology their theology about the holy spirit separate and distinct from christianity and over and against remember that reaction theology the whole idea of polemical explanations well you guys say the holy spirit is the third person of this triune god we say no there's only one god and the holy spirit is just another description of god or a description of the power. Power that emanates from god if there's any separation at all right a power from god an you know impersonal force or something to that effect so they're going to say no there's no complex uh triune persons and things like that they go on to say the idea of god as a duality or trinity is considered uh or not purely monotheistic right in other words it's 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 heretical it's it's um It's wrong. (laughs) It's an error. All right, let's finish this uh, section here. Evangelical Christians, these are my own words, evangelical Christians who hold to an historical Trinitarian perspective on God, Right? see more on classical Trinitarianism below, they shouldn't be surprised, really, at rabbinic Judaism's rejection of a tripersonal God, as this is essentially part and parcel with their rejection of Yeshua Jesus as the true messiah right and we're talking about rabbinic judaism and those forms of judaism that reject messianic judaism or reject christianity and they've been this way since the late first century a.d right ever since the temple was destroyed ever since christianity was on the rise ever since um the new testament was penned ever since the apostles continued to take the message of, of yeshua around the world rabbinic judaism was on the defense from that perspective I go on to say and of course since historical Christianity and in my uh in my assertion nearly all the branches of Christianity uh assert the divinity of Jesus as the son of God right nearly all of them then I go on to say it only makes sense that mainstream Judaism would mount a reasonable defense of their views of monotheism by positing a god who is indivisible and incorporeal, right? He can't be divided and you can't see him. He's not touchable. He doesn't have a physical body. That's what I mean by incorporeal. He doesn't have uh parts um, that we can describe. You know, Jesus is obviously seeable and hearable and you know knowable. You could you could you could talk with him, right? And yet if he's God, then How is it that there's the invisible God and the visible God? I mean, isn't that one too many gods, right? There's two gods right there on the scene. At least that's the way rabbinic Judaism defines it. All right, I go on to say, Indeed, one of the most famous Jewish sages by the name of Maimonides, which is a nickname for the the full name is Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, or Maimon or uh, Rambam is another nickname, Maimonides or Rambam um he actually composed what is now the known as the famous 13 principles of jewish faith in which he reiterates rather matter-factly concerning hashem in point number three right you're ready for it here's his quote this is what he has to say quote the belief in god's non non-corpor- non-corporality nor that he will be affected by any physical occurrences such as movement or rest or dwelling so Jewish people who are religious um, have this memorized they recite this um, probably regularly um, if you're going to be citing Maimonides um, we believe with a perfect faith I think they say that God is non corporeal he doesn't have a body right he's not affected by physical occurrences right you can't you can't touch him you can't um, um, see his, his His face and things like that, right? Uh, he's, he's, He's not affected by movement or rest or dwelling or things like that. So I say in conclusion to this particular section, so much for expecting them to hold any semblance of a third person of the Trinity belief with regards to... The holy spirit right and of course that makes sense uh, rabbinic judaism is not going to um give any credence to any you know first second third person of the trinity nope that's just not going to happen in rabbinic judaism and that'll do it for a look at uh the uh, who or what is the holy spirit as we see it through the lens of rabbinic judaism there's so so much more we could have talked about but i wanted to be brief since um Uh, Essentially, most Christians know by now that rabbinic Judaism rejects uh, Trinitarian beliefs. Um, and So if you're ever going to witness to a religious Jew about uh, God, just be aware that uh, even when it comes to the Holy Spirit, they're likely not to even consider that the Holy Spirit is a separate entity that can be sent from God to do God's bidding. They're likely just going to say, well, the Holy Spirit is God. And God is the Spirit, and there's no separate persons going on there. So just kind of be aware of that. But that'll do it for Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. So let's begin to wind our study down and um, entertain the liturgy for tonight. A few weeks ago, as we were going into Passover, we read through Exodus 13, 1-10 through in the English. So I'm not going to read the English again tonight. All I'm going to do tonight is read the hebrew yep it's going to be all hebrew and so i'm just going to read through exodus 10 i'm um, sorry exodus 13 1 through 10 in the hebrew and that'll do it for the section from the tanakh or from the torah and then i'll turn right over to the Apostolic scriptures and i will read the english and the greek there i read the english a long time ago but since it's such a short passage i'll read of the english and the greek but for now let me just read through the um uh, hebrew This is Exodus 13, Um, and so uh, this should take, uh, I don't know, maybe three to five minutes, so just bear with me. If you're not used to a lot of Hebrew, we'll uh, sit back and um, follow along as best you can. Verse 1 says, Verse 2, Verse 3, Vayomer Moshe El Haam Zokor et Hayam, Hayom, Hazer Asher Yitzatem, Mimitraim, Mibetavadim, Kiba Hosek Yad Hotzi, Adonai, Etchem Mizevoloye Hell Hamates. Verse four Hayom atem Yotzim Bachodesh Ha Aviv. Verse five. Let me see, does it catch all that? No. Uh, verse five. Vahaya hi yavi acha adonai, el erts hakinaani, vahahiti, vaha emuri, vaha hivi, Va yivusi, asher nishba la avotecha la tet, lach erts zavach halav udavash, vahavata et Haavoda hazot bahodeshaze. Verse six. Shivat Yamim to ha matzot uv hashvii hag ladonai. Verse seven. Matzot yel hail eight. Shivat Hayamim yamim. Voloyer e la ha hamates Verse eight. Vahigata lavinca by yum hahule mord. Va avur ze asa adonai libet se Verse Nine. Vahayalahalo or yadcha yadaha uzich run bain eneha lemaan tihetoratadonai bafika ki bayal hazach hotsi acha adonai bimitraim. Verse ten. Vashamarta et hahuka hazot lam moada miyamim yamima. And that'll do it for the hebrew uh, of our liturgy tonight that was exodus 13 verses 1 through 10 in case you want to go back and figure out what i was saying there let's now turn to first corinthians chapter 5 and just read through this liturgy real quick i will read the english and the hebrews are the english and the greek since it's very short Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I say that this is one of those rare places where we actually find a direct commandment from the, Paul, the apostle in the new testament to keep a torah commandment paul says let us therefore celebrate the festival he's not talking about easter at least not talking about the modern version of easter that has come to develop separate and distinct from passover perhaps maybe if we want to entertain the idea that the word easter was refer- was an early term referring to the Pascha, then i would say yeah he's referring to easter but um he's really referring to passover and we'll see this as i look at the greek here in a moment. In verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually— oh, I'm sorry. I, I actually wanted to read 6, 7, and 8, so let me back up. I just read verse 8 there. <laughs> we got the conclusion. Let me back up to verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? context context why is he bringing in leaven well he's about to talk about the passover well we already read it in verse eight so you guys know where i'm going then he says in verse seven cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed and then from there he says let us therefore celebrate the festival all right so um paul is telling the readers there at uh, Colossae, i'm sorry at corinth keep the festival and what festival? It's the Passover festival. Let's read the Greek. Ukalan, verse 6. Ukalan to kalkema hemon, uk oidate, hati mikra zume, halon to furama zumoi. Verse 7. Ekatharata tain palayan, zumei hina eta neon, furama kathos, este, azumoi kai gar to. Pascha and Pascha is the Greek word for Passover, or I think the KJV actually has Easter there. Um, I might be wrong. Uh, Topasca for Christ our Passover Lamb. Pascha hemon Etuthe Christos. And then in verse uh, eight, hoste hortadzomen. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with or may in zume palayan made in zumoy Zumei kakis, Kai paneirias all in. Let's try that again. All in adzumeis, elikrines Kai alethias Not with the unleavened bread, uh, but with the new bread. The un not with the the leavened bread of error and 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 um of what do we say unsincerity or insincerity but with the but with the the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth um, as i kind of enhance the paraphrase so, yeah. there we but, no. who name the name of yeshua and have eyes that have been opened by the holy spirit the ruach kodesh we know that yeshua is the spotless lamb therefore we can make a connection between yeshua as the lamb of god that takes away the sin of the world and thus this doesn't simply have to become the what i what i think is the default model for our own messianic passover observances yes i think we should be keeping messianic Passover observances we can borrow in fact we can and should borrow traditions from Judaism that honor Hashem that is God and if as long as those traditions uphold his laws then I think it's a safe practice of borrowing from traditional Judaism uh, for our Messianic celebrations, our Messianic Passovers, our church observances that seek to return to a Hebraic lifestyle. I think this is a good way of, of forming our, our and, and expressing our connection to national Israel as remnant to Israel. Jews and Gentiles who, are, who, are, who name the name of Yeshua I believe identify as remnant Israel, I, AKA the Church, and therefore, since uh, the Torah was given to Israel, which would include remnant Israel, the Torah was given to national Israel, which includes remnant Israel. Then the the Passover still is still relevant for us, but we must be careful. i go going to say to always take our final orders from the Master and from the Apostolic Scriptures. Right. This means our Torah observance is going to necessarily differ from traditional Judaic. Torah observance why because we follow the true rabbi named Yeshua Jesus when in doubt side with scripture instead of tradition don't just do something because it is Jewish right this is a um, an unfortunate uh, occurrence in messianic circles and it's quite common. Hey, let's just do it because the Jews are doing it. Let's just do it because the rabbis say uh, that this is what the Torah teaches. Right. A lot of Jewish tradition isn't isn't accurate either. A lot of Jewish tradition is anti-Christian. A lot of Jewish tradition is 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 anti-messianic. It's 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 um it's counter-missionary and things like that. So you got to very be very careful. Besides, I believe the current Lord's Supper that we participate in is in fact a mini. Passover. If my postulation is true, then, albeit in drastically reduced form, most Christians are already celebrating the Passover. So I, I think that, that the Lord's Supper actually is a mini-Passover. Uh, people who celebrate this uh, observance, uh, they're actually celebrating the Passover. They simply don't know they're celebrating the Passover. Um, they're doing it Messianic style. They just don't, perhaps don't know it. To be sure, as I say in my answer, Yeshua's Last Supper with his disciples was what I call a fusion of the traditional Passover that Judaism had preserved for 1,500 years up into this point. It was a fusion of that Passover Seder with the institution of the Lord's Supper that he was walking right into and fulfilling right before their very eyes, right? Communion the communion services that we take, I don't think they replace Passover, they didn't replace Passover, or else Paul's instructions about celebrating the festival that we read about just a moment ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, those, that those instructions would make nonsense where Paul says, let us keep the feast. So, if communion replaced Passover when Paul says, let us keep the feast, then he would have left them with a big question mark. Paul, what festival are you referring to when you tell us to keep the feast? Make sense? Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles are expected to incorporate the Lord's Supper into the Mosaic Passover in order to highlight what our Savior did for us on the cross. So what I have to say is that the Exodus from Egypt as such forms, in my opinion, the antecedent theology to understand that each one of us as believers, both Jew and Gentile, we were set free from our own personal Egypt of sin and shame the exodus from Egypt is the paradigm of biblical freedom it's the type and shadow that we as believers need to draw our own personal salvation experience from when God saves us through the blood of Messiah the picture is that of being set free from bondage From slavery to sin, of course. And Egypt is that type and shadow, that biblical picture of slavery, of sin, of shame, of bondage. Since the Lord's Supper celebrates his death, and since Gentiles are grafted into Remnant Israel, right? Just like I mentioned earlier, they take their place alongside believing Jews in the remnant of Israel. So it's not just Remnant Jewish Israel. Get that out of your head. It's Remnant Jew and Gentile who are um, known as the Church. Because all of this is a spiritual reality. Because this is a, a a reality that we can we can latch onto. In my opinion, I go on to say in closing, it only makes sense to put the Torah Passover, the one that we read about in Exodus chapter 12 and 13, it only makes sense to put the Torah Passover and the Lord's Supper that we read about in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we can actually go on to read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as well. Um, It only makes sense to put these two together as Paul, no doubt, did for his first century communities. Does that make sense to you? let's turn now to the video watch the video uh, and when we're finished with the video we'll simply dismiss in prayer you ready here we go short questions short answers by tour teacher ariel and e Copyright Tate State Torah Ministries 2015, all rights reserved. Here's our question for tonight. Why is faith without works dead? We're gonna study that James passage. I am a firm believer that genuine faith will always lead to genuine fruit and genuine works. Now, notice in my slide, I've got a picture of the cross and the Torah scrolls. The cross represents faith and the Torah scrolls represent fruit. James 2.18 says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You can also see Ephesians 2.10. So this concept of faith and works is quite popular in the New Testament. Faith and faithfulness are both important concepts worthy of careful study in order to properly understand how the Bible emphasizes how one vindicates the other. Tim Haig of TorahResource.com explains the Hebrew and the Greek noun and verb cognates this way. So we're going to get a little bit technical, so listen up. This is Haig. One of the major difficulties we encounter in our discussion of trust, believe, and faith faithful is that there's no corresponding verbal form of faith in the English language. That is, we have no way of saying that one faithed or that someone is faithing in God. Yet, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word group expressing the concept of faith also contains a verb cognate. I bet you didn't know that. For example, the Hebrew verb aman, uh, which translates as to be supported, from which we derive the verb to believe, has the corresponding noun emuna, which means faith or faithful. Yeah, that's how the Hebrew works. And that's interesting. It works the same way as in the Greek. Likewise, the Greek verb, pistuo, which translates as to believe, has the corresponding noun pistis, which means faith or faithful. Unfortunately, many English readers do not realize that believing, having faith, and being faithful all derive from the same word group, whether in the Hebrew or the Greek. So it's helpful for us right away to understand this relationship between the noun words and the verbal words. The way I see it, faith and faithfulness function as two sides of the same coin. One coin, two sides, in that they're both precious in God's eyes. Understand what I mean? Faith and faithfulness, they're both important concepts. So, I don't want you to misunderstand me though. I'm not saying that we're saved by works, right? perish that thought. I am saying that genuine faith will lead to genuine faithfulness, just like we read in our passage to the book of James there. So let's flesh this out a little bit and uh, see how it impacts us righteousness can be defined in two ways we have behavioral righteousness which is actually doing what is right and then we have forensic righteousness which is being regarded as in two ways righteousness in the sense of a that god has cleared him of guilt for past sins so we're talking about forensic forensic righteousness that has two aspects to it so that's part a and all right you understand what i mean there forensic righteousness cleared of guilt for past sins that's the first part of forensic righteousness and then we have b that god has given him a new human nature inclined to obey god rather than rebel against him as before both of those aspects of forensic righteousness millard eckerson stated sanctification is a process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal status before god just kind of straightforward makes sense and we'll flesh this out a little bit later so what are our conclusions to our short slideshow tonight our short video Let's recap. Faith without works is dead because genuine faith will always lead to faithfulness. And that's the way that God designed it. If we give the word faith its Semitic background as we should, we can never divorce the sense of faithfulness that works from the meaning of agreeing with the truth or being convinced by the truth. To put it another way, the apostles never envisioned a situation where someone was accredited as having genuine faith but whose life did not evidence faithfulness. The Torah is God's teaching to man about righteousness what it is and how it behaves the true believer that is anyone who is redeemed by the blood of the lamb does not do in order to become he does because he is what God has made him the righteousness of God in Messiah who we are determines what we do so this is such an important concept for us to uh, appropriate as New Testament believers, all right? Thus, we can now understand. James writes, I will show you my faith by my works. My faith is vindicated by my actions, okay? Amen? Amen. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term, Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. I right, bless your name, and thank you for uh, this Opportunity to share my thoughts with the students and to engage in the interaction with those uh, people from around the world who join me week after week during these live internet studies. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with your word, for making it readily available to us, for sending your Holy Spirit to explain it to us, and for allowing us to fellowship with one another as we study together week after week. Continue to protect us and strengthen us and raise us up and give us a voice of witness as we take the gospel message around the world. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Shame Yeshua. Amen. <music>